Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. We're on part seven of the reading, and this is the beginning of chapter 14. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 14. Old Baltic Port and New I first found Baltic Port in Kittywake and, having found it, made it our headquarters for a happy summer of minor exploration. I had heard of it as the Russian naval port and imagined it a kind of sheer ness, busy with motor launches, steam pinnaces and other forms of naval activity. I found it a sleepy little old-time harbour, made by moles from the shore enclosing a square basin, the shore being left as it had always been, so that the fishing boats used to beach themselves upon it at full speed, a man jumping on the thwart and swinging backwards from the shrouds to save the mast at the moment of grounding, when they often ran a boat half out of the water. The day Kittywake struggled in, there was a British steamship, a Wilson boat, the Cato, in the harbour, and though she is a small ship, she left very little room for anything else. I think the Cato called twice that summer, but all the rest of the traffic there was made up of local schooners, and the harbour master had little else to do but to sail a smart little skiff to the bank off Pecorot for fishing, or across to Rugo, or round between the islands to see how far she could do it. There was never any hurry in Baltic port, and there seemed to be a lot of holidays. On one of them, I watched the crew of the Cato beaten at football by a local team. Eleven played on each side, but the Cato's crew had no spare men, whereas every man in the port was waiting round the field to take his turn in the local team, and as one tired, another took his place. On another, the Cato lowered away a lifeboat, and we went off to the fishing grounds under a standing lug. At one side of the harbour was a low stage beside which a grey government launch was moored end to end with a converted fishing boat, partly tarred and partly painted blue, in which, on Sundays, stray visitors were transported to the Rugo Islands and back. Once a week the three or four lads on the government launch took her out to sea on mysterious business, but for the most part they lay half-naked on the stones on the far side of the mole or had splashing matches with each other. The little town had much the same character. Small boys played gorodki, a very exciting Russian form of skittles, on the broad streets that were nearly all grass. Cattle grazed there. I met three sheep coming out of church with the sedate manner of respectable parishioners. I watched a hare playing by the railway station, where a large part of the population used to meet in the evenings to see the train come in from Raval. There was a post office, and I think three or perhaps even four shops. There was also a fire brigade who played various instruments and now and again stirred the whole town by giving a concert. Some young women visitors tried to organise a flag day there, but it was a failure, though everybody in the town was very much interested and asked them how much they got. There could not be a pleasanter little place. But with growing traffic in the Baltic, such quiet could hardly continue in a port which, in all but the most exceptional winters, is free from ice. There are fifteen fathoms of water between the mainland and Rugo, and the water is deep almost to the shores. 
Long after the way into Raval is blocked with ice, ships can come freely into Rugawick and into Baltic port itself. Peter the Great and Catherine after him realised what could be done with such natural advantages and relics of their work show what Baltic port may yet become. Just north of the harbour is the old fort, carved out of the cliff itself, with deep moats which must once have been sunk to sea level or very near it. There are the old bastions, cunningly laid out as in Peter's project, the old gun positions, with sheer cliff below them on the side facing the bay, and on all other sides, cliffs also, invisible from a yard or two away, made by cutting the moat down from the highland, a moat a hundred yards across, winding this way and that all round the fort with perpendicular sides of solid rock. The work was done with convict labour, and the labour of prisoners of war, and all this stuff cut out of the rock was tipped into the sea to make the mole that he had planned to stretch across the bay and to turn it into the finest enclosed harbour in the Baltic. I have seen old pictures of the work in progress, the masons busy in boats about their business. Yard by yard the mole was pushed out to sea, and from Rugo Island over on the other side where you can still see that the natural line of the coast is broken, they began building another fort and a second mole to meet the first. On that side they did not get so far, but on this the sparboy northwest of the harbour marks the end not of a natural reef, but of Peter's artificial causeway and breakwater, which, unfinished as it is, serves to protect the stretch of beach, always covered with fishing boats and drying nets between the fort and the harbour. When I was there, there were wild roses growing in the fort. Columbines and Canterbury bells were growing in the moat, and lying up there on the top of the old gun positions, I used to spend hot afternoons looking out to sea, thinking of Peter and his passion for ships, and eating the wild strawberries. On the shingle below the fort, where the women sit with their children, fastening small flat stones as sinkers to the bottoms of the nets, I saw a German mine being put to a purpose precisely opposite to that for which it was intended. The fishermen were building a new boat. Her keel was laid and they were putting on the planking. They were busy steaming the planks and their boiler was a German mine, emptied of its explosives and neatly fixed over a small furnace of stones from the beach. How they had managed to get the explosives out I do not know, but here was the mine with a good fire under it, boiling away like a domestic kettle and being used for making boats instead of for their destruction. My chief friends in Baltic port in those days were the harbour master and his wife, who fed me with coffee that day when I first came in there, so tired that I fell asleep with my head on the table before I ever could put the coffee to my lips. With him, I used to sail in his little skiff, which he could steer by merely shifting his own huge weight forward or aft. With her, I used to remember my own north country, where also the good wives will tell you what a fool you be at the very moment when they are drying your boots and mixing you a hot grog to save you from the cold that you have earned. I met her one day going to Raval with great bundles of lilac blossom under her arm for a friend in town, and on her head, instead of the pretty green shawl she wore at home, a hat with an enormous white ostrich feather exactly in the front of it, waving like a helmet plume. She had had this feather for 19 years, she said, had never washed it, had never gone into Raval without it, and yet it was still as white as when it was new. 
It had survived many hats. Nineteen years before, her husband, a sailor then, came back from a voyage. She had forgotten where he had been, but no matter, he came back in a hard winter when even Baltic port was frozen in, and he'd left his ship stuck in the ice and came home to her to Pekarot Lighthouse on Christmas Eve, across the frozen seas, with two ostrich feathers, this and another, between his shirt and his skin, so escaping the customs officers. And were you pleased with him? I asked, and was delighted by her reply. Pleased with him, she said? Why, I gave him a proper talking to, straight away, for being such a fool as to bring two white ostrich feathers. If he'd have had a hape of a sense, he'd have brought a white one and a black one. What with talks with the harbour master and his wife, whose roughness of tongue was only a defence for the softness of her kind heart, with the lighthouse keeper from Odensholm, who used to sail in now and again in a little half-deck sloop, and with the skippers and crews of the little sailing vessels which, but for the Cato, made all the traffic of the harbour, what with days fishing on the river six miles away, whither I took Gittywake's dinghy on a country cart, and days in wind and sunshine on Peter's Fort and the cliff by Pekarot, I liked Baltic port well at all times, but perhaps best of all in the evenings, after sundown, when we used to sit on Kitty Wake's green cabin roof, there being no other dry place after the swilling of the decks. The old watchman would carefully lay his long pipe on the bench outside his wooden hut and wander slowly round the harbour to climb the rickety iron ladder and light the light at the harbour mouth. When we were there in May and June, it was never really dark, a guitar would tune up in one of the schooners, an accordion in another, and most of the little ships carried family parties, skipper, wife, and a little skipperlets, and there would be dancing on the decks while the local beauties would lie back in the stern sheets of the dinghy belonging to the government launch and be rowed about by the sailors. And just at this time, cutter or schooner would warp to the harbour mouth and, with the glow of the evening sky on her sails, slip silently away to make the most of the land breeze comes with the setting of the sun. Now all is changed. There where Kitty Wake lay to her anchor is now the new quay on which they say there is to be a railway and a crane. Things may be better when the works in progress are finished, for new moles are to be built and the harbour will be twice the size. Things will be better for the big ships busy on the Russian trade, but I doubt if they will be better for us. The harbour master is too busy to sail his little skiff. The few shops have already multiplied to a dozen or more, and whereas in the old days the harbour master's wife was only sometimes willing to give lodging to those whom she counted her friends, there is now a regular hotel, the rooms of which are full of busy, serious people, interested in the new activity of the port. Big steamers with steel cables will soon leave no room for the schooners, and little ships like Rakundra and Kittywake will never again find Baltic port the delightful, lazy anchorage that it was just a year ago. Chapter 15. The Rugo Islands We did not call at Rugo in Rakundra, for we were hurrying to get southwards to the places we had not yet visited, but the year before, in Kittywake, we had sailed round between the two islands and had landed at the jetty that you can see from the quay at Baltic Port and walked all over little Rugo. The inhabitants of these islands, men and women, and even pigs, are patriotic Swedes, when I first rounded up there, three aged men and a pig strolled out on the jetty to inspectors and began at once by asking me if I spoke Swedish. I told them in Swedish that I did not, or only very little, but they were persuaded that I was only teasing them. 
And when at last they were convinced they lost all interest and strolled disappointed away. The pig remained on guard, and when I landed, resented my presence, worrying round me like a good house dog. I am sure that if I had been a Swede, he would have wagged his tail and licked my hand. A day or two later, however, Leslie joined us from Raval, and we crossed to the island again. He had lived in Christiania and Copenhagen, and was sure of being able to make himself understood. A man on the jetty who had watched us sailing over had disappeared by the time we arrived. I suppose he was one of those whom I had disappointed by not being a Swede. But Leslie went boldly up past the little windmill to the first of the wooden cottages to buy eggs. He returned discomforted with the news that this cottage was inhabited exclusively by widows who did not keep hens. I had gone farther and found another cottage outside which some sort of Sunday parliament was in progress, half a dozen men and two or three women sitting on logs and stools, the men smoking long pipes. Spurred by competition as a linguist with Leslie, I shouted out boldly, egg," with electrical effect. A woman with a white shawl over her head leapt up and disappeared on the run towards some outhouses. The gathering broke up. Everyone slipped away and ostentatiously busied himself or herself with something or other. And when Leslie and the cook came up, they refused to believe that I had done anything but terrify the population. Gradually, the men and women, having, as it were, put themselves in the right by being found busy, deserted their imaginary occupations and came half-heartedly towards us. In the background, I could see the fleet runner in the white shawl and green petticoat darting from outhouse to outhouse with a basket. An old, humpbacked witch, certainly not over four and a half feet high, with a bright maroon shirt hanging loose outside her petticoat, hobbled from a cottage to stare at us from afar. And presently, the egg-gatherer, shielded by a group of friends, drifted towards the gate where we stood. The same questions were asked that had been put to me on my first coming by the old men on the jetty. Were we Swedish? Where had we come from? How long had we been in Baltic port? My Swedish, having obtained eggs, faded away behind Leslie's Scandinavian fluency. We bought butter, but had no paper to put it in. The old man who sold it us said at once that we could take their saucer and bring it back in the evening when we had done with it a remarkable proof of the honesty of the islanders and their consequent belief in the honesty of others. In Russia, such a loan would have been unthinkable. On the mainland here, the canny lender would have asked for a deposit of at least twice the value of the saucer. We settled the matter by putting the butter in the biggest of our tin mugs. We walked down to this village of Storoby, together with three mottled cows driven by a woman with a handkerchief on her head of red, orange and white, a deep rich green skirt, and a bodice of bright purple, flaming like a tulip. As we walked, we were joined by other women and other cows, until at last there was a considerable herd, driven by four women with long sticks over an open space of moorland, green grass and swamp, with grey rocks showing through the turf. Fields on either hand were enclosed with stone walls built without mortar, like our walls in Lancashire and Westmoreland, but lower because the stones are round, sea-worn boulders and harder to fit than the flat slates at home. Presently, we broke away from our companions and made for the woods to get out of the wind and find a place for dinner. The woods were even wetter than the open country, carpeted with moss that squelched under the feet. They were not the pine woods of the mainland, but birch woods, and under their silver stems, wherever the ground was not a morass, were lilies of the valley. 
Near the far edge of the woods we stopped and cooked our dinner under the shadow of a great rock on a good fire of birch, which is the best of all trees for the heat that is in it. Climbing to the top of the rock and standing upon it, I could just see the glint of water, and beyond it the dark woods of the other or greater Rugo. After dinner, a pipe and some flower gathering, we went slowly out of the woods and across one stone wall after another until we came down on an astounding strange beauty. The shore, flat with scattered boulders, seemed to slip unwillingly into the sea. The water dotted with rocks so that it looked as if one could walk ankle-deep from one island to the other was quite smooth. And in the middle of this shining water, a quarter of a mile away, was a green islet with a little wood at its southern end, and behind this wood, her bows and tilted bowsprit showing and her tall masts heeling over above the trees, was a black two-masted sailing ship, aground. Beyond were the blue waters of the bay, ruffled with wind, and beyond them again, the wooded shore of the mainland. It might have been the opening scene of a boy's story of a pirate island, nor did the scene lose any of its romantic character as we came nearer and saw the black tarred ship reflected in the shallow water, through which the grass rose, disturbing her image, while at her stern a ladder was set with its foot resting on the green meadow. How she got there I could not say, nor how she proposed to depart thence. The waters of the Baltic deepen along these shores when the wind is from the north and west, but I do not think that they could rise so high as to float this vessel, which, undamaged, her anchor out as if in deep water, her masts and rigging intact and fretting the sky, seemed by the ladder, with a gesture of renunciation, to have given up the sea for good and made the land her resting place for ever. We walked on southwards, along the shore, looking at the windmills, which are many and small, like large dovecots, to the village of Lillaby, which, though called the lesser, is really the larger of the two on the island. It is a fishing village, and on the shore, close by, are many little artificial harbours, each big enough for one or at most two small open boats. At the head of each of these little shallow landing places is a shed, hung with the nets and other instruments. There were long nets on hoops, with wide wings opening from their mouths, for the catching of a pike, and the usual very fine nets, like gossamer, some of them stained a faint blue for catching the little silver kilos, which, salted or preserved in oil, are a staple of Estonian diet. Then there were the boys for the nets, wooden boys, each one carved so that its owner would know it, boys shaped like dumbbells, balls, crosses, with flags and without flags, lettered and unlettered. The village itself is a group of little wooden cottages, painted for the most part yellow, with a few blue ones among them, each one set higgledy-piggledy in a little bit of ground with apple trees, which just then were in full bloom. It seemed at first deserted, but as we turned up towards it from the edge of the sea, we saw two old men leaning on a gate in conversation. Both of these men, and a younger man who joined them later, were dressed like sailors in blue striped jerseys under their coats. Leslie, as Scandinavian scholar, was thrust forward as spokesman, and had a great success, fully making up for my first failure on the quay at Storaby. It seemed that news of our arrival had already crossed the island. They knew that we were English, and the elder of the two, evidently the philosopher of the place, told us that it was no wonder we could make ourselves understood, since Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, German and English were all from the same stem, and were the five great languages of the world. 
Politely trying to make us feel at home and among friends, he asked how we were getting on with our coal strike and wanted us to tell him about Ireland, which he confounded with Courland, though when Leslie said that the Courlanders were now independent and called their country Latvia, he at once explained that he meant a country somewhere that belonged to England. The inhabitants of Lillaby were very timorous of strangers. Besides the three fishermen, we could not get speech of a soul, though we saw several peeping at us through cottage windows as we passed on through a seemingly deserted village. We wanted water and saw a girl in an orchard by a pump, so the cook went in there to ask leave to draw some for herself, but the girl rose and fled silent into the cottage, and the cook filled her can at the pump and came away. Afterwards, we saw the girl's head looking after us round a corner of the wall. We did, however, have one other interview, but that was with a pig. We had come on the nearest thing to a street to be found on the island, low stone walls with a mud lane between them, and barns and painted cottages on either side. I wanted to photograph it, but wanted something in the foreground, and since there was no inhabitants, and I remembered that rather hostile pig I had met on my first landing, said aloud, if only there were a pig. At that very moment, we turned the corner of a barn, and there, in the very middle of the lane, lay a pig indeed. It was such a pig as that described in a novel of the Goncourts, which slept a sleep that could only be due to a heart of gold and a stomach of iron. It lay on the edge of a shadow, in the muddiest bit of road. Its forepaws, idly crossed like the hands of a gentlewoman resting from her knitting. She, for it was a feminine pig, raised her head and grunted at us. The ice was broken. I approached her with affectionate words, camera in hand, begging her to move a yard, no more, into the sunshine. She understood me perfectly, moved into the sunshine, and took up one pose after another, which she judged characteristic of her temperament. I asked her to snuffle in the mud, and she snuffled in the mud. I took off my hat to the pig and thanked her, and she, after showing that she was not to be outdone by her owners in kindness to those who could talk Swedish to the inhabitants of Rugo, for I feel sure that if it had not been for Leslie's conversational successes, she would have treated me in the manner of her brother of Storaby, returned sedately to her place, judged the lengthening shadows, chose the dampest spot that had recently been warmed by the sun, and resumed her calm and contemplative attitude of benevolent repose. Unfortunately, every one of the photographs was a failure. We met no one else on the island and came out from the village on wide, open grassland and over that to the woods where we gathered lilies of the valley, made fire on a stone and tea which we drank squatting on our heels which squelched beneath us in the marsh while a woodpecker shrieked and jeered in the birch trees overhead. Then, as evening fell, we hurried back to Kittywake, made sail again and returned to our anchorage in Baltic Port. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. I shouted out boldly, Hanenuga egg, with electrical effect. A woman with a white shawl over her head leapt up and disappeared on the run <laughs> towards, some, towards some outhouses.